almost all of us are a fan of something. So our thesis five years ago was, can this idea of fandom be applied to any organization? And the answer is 100% absolutely yes. Any organization can develop fans, nonprofits, government agencies, B2B companies, enterprise software companies, doctors, dentists. I mean, you name it. From Comcast, NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast that elevates innovative entrepreneurs and their ideas. I'm Danielle Kahn, head of Lift Labs, and today we're sitting down with David Meerman Scott. David is a marketing strategist, entrepreneur, advisor, and author of 11 best selling books. He and his daughter, Reiko, collaborated to write David's latest book, Fanocracy. In this episode, David chats about the importance of turning your customers into your fans. You'll hear some tips and tricks on audience engagement, strategic branding, and how brands can get it so wrong if they don't build an authentic relationship with their community. We join David now, live at Lift Labs. Our guest today is world-renowned marketing expert, David Meerman Scott, the author of 11 books that have sold hundreds of thousands of copies, been translated into dozens of languages, the latest of which he's here to talk about today, Fanocracy, which is turning fans into customers and customers into fans, a book that he wrote with his daughter, Reiko. David, welcome to Lift Labs. Welcome to Ideas Elevated. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Luke. Why don't we start with a question that I'm sure you start with uh, a lot of the time, which is describe a fanocracy. What is it that you mean by that? It's when the fans rule. And it's an organization that puts the needs and wishes of customers ahead of everything else. Unlike what most organizations do, especially what startups do, which is put products and services in front. You talk about the different kinds of, of fandom. You're a, you're a massive Grateful Dead live music fan. Your daughter is, uh, is, is a fan of fan fiction and Comic-Con. And so fandom has been around forever. What is it that is special about today that makes it particularly relevant to businesses? So what we um, started this process, this, I, this project of writing and researching this book about five years ago, because both of us, she's now 26 years old, my co-author and daughter, Rego. And so at the time she was about 21. And we were thinking to ourselves that number one, the whole online world to both of us was feeling polarizing and it was feeling dark and feeling like a place where it was harder and harder to engage with people because number one, the social networks are out for, their algorithms are tuned for profit as opposed to tuned for getting things out to people. Um, and then the whole political world is, is, is polarized and you know people into, into their groups and so on. So uh, that was what we saw on one hand. And on the other hand, we saw that we were just massive fans of the things that we love. So we think the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of superficial online communications at a time when all of us are hungry for a true human connection. And so Reiko is way into Harry Potter. She's 
read every book multiple times, seen every movie multiple times, gone to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter theme park multiple times, and she wrote an 85,000-word alternative ending to the Harry Potter <laughs> series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix and put that on a fan fiction site. It's been downloaded thousands of times. So certified Harry Potter geek. I've been to 75 Grateful Dead concerts, uh, and in my life, I've been to 790 live music shows. I have a spreadsheet that I keep. Every time I go to a live show, I write down the date and who I went with and so on. Yeah, geek out about it. So on one hand, we've got this cold polarizing digital world. On the other hand, almost all of us are a fan of something. So our thesis five years ago was, can this idea of fandom be applied to any organization or is it just for entertainment? And the answer is 100% absolutely yes. Any organization can develop fans. And we found examples of all different types of companies, nonprofits, government agencies, B2B companies, enterprise software companies, doctors, dentists. I mean, you name it, we found examples of organizations that have created fans. Talk about some of those principles using using some of the, the cases. The book is is chock full of really cool stories about actual brands and companies that are that embody these these principles. I love the the story about the the surfboard shop yeah. uh, that encourages people to go and, and build them themselves. Talk about some of the, the kind of the, the principles that lie behind Fanocracy using some of the, the examples that you use in the book. Sure. Yeah. So um, uh, the surfboard company is called Grain Surfboards. They do wooden surfboards. And what's so interesting about them is they give more than they have to. They they allow people to engage with them in ways that most organizations say, no freaking way, we're not going to do that. They have a surfboard building class. You go to their factory in York, Maine, and you spend four days with them. And they teach you everything you need to know, and they show you everything you need to know, and they help you to create your own wooden surfboard using their proprietary board building techniques, which are, which are really interesting techniques because they have a board build. They have a, a it's like a ship building technique, right? It's with ribs in it and, uh, and they invented this. And so therefore the, the surfboard is hollow and it floats. It's wonderful. And they're not wor worried that people are going to steal that technique. They'd rather have these people in, like me, I've done two surfboards up yeah. there, enjoy this. And they have a huge fan base, like tens of thousands of people who follow them on the social networks, people like me who come back and build boards again and again and again. And so they've done a, a really, really good job with that. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, let people behind the curtain, yeah. you know, let people see more of your organization than you might normally think. Um, and it's really, uh, it's really a fabulous technique. There's, there's 10 of these ideas in the book. And one of the ones that I think is most interesting is my daughter, Reiko, um, did an undergraduate degree in neuroscience and now finish, finishing up her medical school degree. And so we wanted to dig into the neuroscience behind fandom. What goes on in your brain when you become a fan of something. And it was fascinating to me. And it turns out that neuroscientists, we interviewed a bunch of neuroscientists, told us that we humans in our ancient brains have a need to want to be a part of a tribe of people because that's a survival technique. Because if you are part of, if you're part of a tribe, if you're in a tribe, Lift Labs is a tribe. 
This is a fan, fanocracy right here. Lift Labs is a fanocracy. It's a tribe of people who come together physically at events, virtually to listen to podcasts like this one or watch the videos and the other content you produce. And people know one another and they know who you are. And I mean, this is, this is uh, exactly a fanocracy. And our brains then say to us, this is a group of people I trust. They're part of my tribe. And we don't trust people that we don't know. And that's why if you get into a crowded elevator, you feel nervous. So, um, so there's actually one neuroscientist, Edward T. Hall, identified levels of proximity. There's further than about 12 feet away is called public space. And we don't worry too much about people in our public space. We know they're there. We don't worry about them. Inside of about 12 feet to four feet, that's called social space. And in social space, we begin to track those people because we need to know friends or foe, part of our tribe or not part of our tribe. Do I need to fight this person potentially? Our ancient brain, we can't help it, hardwired into us to do that. Inside of four feet is called personal space, cocktail party distance, uh, when people are good friends having a, a chit chat. Or if you're in a crowded elevator, you're the same distance, it really, makes you really nervous. So how can an organization get people into social space and personal space. Mm -hmm. And um, all entrepreneurs should be thinking about that. How can I figure out a way to get people close physically to me uh, and my employees yeah. and maybe to each other? So a, a client conference is a great example. Um, uh, of a way to build a fanocracy, to build a tribe. And even if of you're a if you're a digital business, uh, which you know many of the companies that we work with are technology platforms. They're not physical spaces. They're not a surf shop or restaurants right. we talk about in the book. But those bring figuring out building a community and then how do you get them together is as a way that I would imagine and an kind of a non physical company could apply these principles. Well, what's here, here's an, there's another aspect of neuroscience that becomes really interesting here because people do say. David, I, you know, I can't get people physically close together because we run a global business or we run a virtual business or, you know, we have, you know, thousands of customers and it's not really doable. So there's another concept called mirror neurons, which are the part of our brains that fire when we see someone do something or even when we hear somebody do something. So for example, I'll demonstrate right now. If I were to take a bite of a lemon oh my gosh, it makes my eyes yeah. close and my eyes start to water, my mouth puckers up, my saliva glands yeah. are doing their thing. They really heart, yeah. right? And, and, and I would imagine just by me talking about it that your brain is firing too. And that's from mirror neurons. So here's how you, any entrepreneur can use this in their business. You can use photographs and video cropped as if you're in the personal space of someone four feet or, or, or so, um, you know, cocktail party distance. And that serves as a way for people, their brain says that they're together with you, even though intellectually they know they're not, which is exactly why you feel you know a movie star. You don't know that movie star. You never met them. Yeah. But you f your brain tells you you know them because you see them cropped within four feet close to the screen. You're like, oh, I know that person. Your brain says you know that person. Your brain says you should trust them because they're part of your tribe, even though it's just an image on a screen. So entrepreneurial organizations can use video and photographs cropped about four feet away, people looking at the camera, 
And that can be an incredibly powerful way to grow fans. Uh, and it also explains the selfie phenomenon. You know, people dismiss the selfie as frivolous and for young people, but in fact, a selfie is really powerful because it's, you know, our arms are four feet or less and, and we're looking at the camera. And if there's other people there, um, we're aligned. If there are more than one person in the selfie, they're very close together, you know, a couple inches sometimes. Yep. And that signals to the people who see that photograph that these people like one another because they're smiling, looking at the camera really close to one another. And our brains signal to us that we're part of that same group of several people. Really powerful. That's why on social networks, selfies get so much engagement. And you talk, you, you use in the, in the book, uh, you talk about politicians now using this. And it was, it's interesting. I know Elizabeth Warren has got this down yeah, to a science and, and kind of rattling through people. I, I was at an event uh, last summer with Joe Biden, and it was interesting to see him working the rope line afterwards. And nobody asked him for an autograph. Everybody asked him for a selfie, and he was taking the phone himself, yeah. and he, he himself has kind of got it down to an art as yeah, well. Yeah, selfies, really selfies are the new autographs. Um, I, I too have loved to go to the presidential candidate events and, and watch how they do that, and they have they have different techniques. The different candidates have different techniques. The best I ever saw was Hillary Clinton. Um, because she got it down, I measured, she got it down to 7.2 seconds yeah. each. Yeah, she was like, she would take the photo. Yeah. Bang, bang, Because you don't want to have somebody fiddling around yeah. and- yeah. 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 But for entrepreneurs, what typical entrepreneurs do, and, I, and I'm, I'm um, an advisor to about a dozen startups, um, typically in the B2B software um, space, but um, a couple of other different ones too. And what most companies do is they use stock photos to represent people, which is the absolute opposite of building fans because everybody knows it's fake. Everyone knows that it's a ripped out of a catalog. But if you use real photos of real people cropped as if it were four feet away, so our, then our brains say we know that person. That's a really powerful way to build fans. The part of the premise for this book, and, and you've written about the power of social media when it comes to, to marketing, but part of the premise is there's, the, the, there's so many ways to communicate now. We've lost real connection. How are, in addition to kind of tactical stuff like like using stock photos, how are brands getting it wrong today that is preventing them from, from building that, that connection with their, their fans? The main thing is, and, and a lot of the things that happen stem from this main thing, is that they focus way too much on their products and services and not enough on the people they're trying to reach, existing and potential customers and partners and employees too, by the way. And that is by far the biggest problem. And I see it all the time. And so the stock photos and, and is a manifestation, but so is you know language like we're the flexible, scalable solution for improving business process okay. using cutting edge technology and best of breed architecture. Yeah. That does not build fans. Yeah. That is just gobbledygook language. Saying you're innovative does not build fans because everyone says they're innovative. Innovative, by the way, means that you're innovative. But if you use the word innovative, by definition, you're not innovative right. because everyone uses it. So I think that the more you can truly develop connections with people, you know, build, build a link to like-minded people, the more you're likely to build fans. Yeah. There's a, another great example in the book where you talk about where a company tried to do this and just got it spectacularly wrong. You talk about IHOP. Oh, my God. Um, 
tell that story and 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 talk about how brands are, they recognize what you're talking about. They try, they're trying to to be different, but they just they miss the mark. Well, that was a yeah, it was a bit of a different example because that came up in the chapter about t- always telling the truth, always being transparent, and th- I see that problem all the time where organizations are they hide behind something. But anyway, what happened with IHOP, International House of Pancakes, pancakes begins with P, the letter P, they, they on social media said they were going to change their name to IHOB, I-H-O-B. And they had a big countdown. They had a new verified tr- Twitter account, which was IHOB. Um, they put up a picture of a crane removing a sign that said IHOP and putting on IHOB. And they're and and they they have lots and lots of fans. Their fans went ballistic. What are you doing? You're the pancake place. It begins with P. Why are you changing? What are you What are you doing? And they let, they ran with this thing for like a week, and they were like talking about how they're changing their name. Mainstream media picked up on it. It was on television. It was in the newspapers. The the um, branding, you know, magazines and reporters were talking about how you know, IHOP has changed their name to IHOP. What are they doing? And then a week later, they said, "Oh, just kidding." And and you know, you've just lost. I don't I don't care what. Some branding person says, "Oh, but we got forty-eight million Twitter engagements, or something yeah. like you know, it's like oh, look at all of the you know the places that wrote about us." They lied. Mm-hmm. They lied to their customers. They lied to their fans, and that is always wrong. Always wrong to do that. Yeah. If it were April Fools, and then they did it for a day, fine. But not for a full week in, the, in a different time of year. I will contrast that with another restaurant, KFC in the UK. And you may remember this. I don't know. Maybe you're even in the UK at the time. But um, they ran out of chicken. You remember that? Yeah. I mean, what a ridiculous story, right? A chicken restaurant that doesn't have any chicken. They could have said, due to a situation beyond our control. Uh, we will be lim- we will have limited supplies of chicken and or they could have said because our logistics company screwed up we don't have any chicken which is exactly what happened mm-hmm. was their logistics company they didn't do that they said oh my gosh we screwed up we are the chicken restaurant without chicken and by doing that and and then they created a uh, an app. They created a website, and they, they changed know, their logo. We uh, have to be careful. Yeah, how yeah, we, yeah. Uh, they did. Well, they did. That. They said, you know, it's usually KFC, but it was FCK. And yeah. you know, you look at it, you look at it quickly, and it might spell something else. And yeah. and then um, and then they um, they had an app that you could see every restaurant in the UK and whether it had chicken or not. And it was a, a really great way. And it was tongue in cheek because yeah. chickens are funny, right? So it was a a, a good way to be honest and transparent rather than what most companies would do, which was just duck the chicken problem. Yeah. Well, and, and that I think connects to another, another point you make in the book around brands have to feel comfortable letting go and, and, and having a little bit more freedom and giving permission to their, their fans to, to take um, the the content and the ideas that are associated and, and kind of run with it and you know that's that's a that's an uncomfortable thought for a, a large corporation with legal and communications teams that that pass every word and look over everything. What what's what case do you make to a 
a big public corporation that that uh, that they should be a little freer with with how they communicate with people? How do you make that case to them? I think from having spent five years researching this idea of fandom, that fans, true fans, believe they own the thing that they're a fan of. If you're a fan of a baseball team or a football team, you believe that is your team. You have ownership over that. And the same thing is true of a, of a product or service, even a B2B company. You know, people think, I own this thing. You know, I, this, is, this is mine. I'm a part of this tribe of people who love this thing, uh, whatever it might be. And organizations that try to control the way that their customers or their fans use um, or talk about a product or service are, are making an enormous mistake. And I find that sometimes it's brand people who do that. Sometimes it's corporate communications people and do, that do that. But it frequently comes from the lawyers who, for whatever reason, uh, believe, and I don't know why management teams um, choose the legal perspective over other perspectives, which I think is totally wrong. So all of you entrepreneurs listening in, you know, the law, the legal perspective is but one perspective. Building fans is another perspective, equally valid. Mm -hmm. You know, take, listen to your counsel, but they're not always right. Uh, and I'll give you a specific example. So my, uh, my daughter, Reiko, my co-author on the book, is a fan of creating art using Adobe Photoshop software. And uh, she loves it. And she's on a lot of different communities, online communities of people who also love to create art using Adobe Photoshop. And they, uh, what they do is they, they share ideas and brush techniques and coloring and how do, how do you create this particular effect. And, you know, it's a real, it's a tight-knit community. And Adobe, for whatever reason, doesn't like individual users of their products. They believe we are a B2B company. We want to sell to lots and lots of people, big companies and all that. That's the first problem. And they're very, very almost vocal about that. The second problem is that they try to dictate the way people actually use the name of the product. Yeah. And they say, you may not say that you Photoshopped something. You can't use it as a verb. You Who doesn't want to be a verb? You must That's say, like the Holy Grail. I know, right? <laughs> you must say that you manipulated something using Adobe, trademark, circle R, Photoshop, trademark, circle R software. And they have other, they have a dozen examples of what you can and can't do. And so my daughter, Reiko, says, you know, my friends and I laugh at Adobe because everything they say that we should do sounds like an automatron and everything that we say sounds like a fan. Yeah. yeah, so they're actually trying to tamp down fandom, which I think is a terrible mistake. Yeah. I'll give you an example on the other side, though. Uh, you know, the, the uh, iRobot makes a Roomba vacuum cleaners, okay. right? Yeah. Those robotic vacuum cleaners. There's a whole subculture of fans who shoot videos of their pets riding on the Roombas. And there's tens of millions of of followers of these, of, of views of these videos, right? And and so I found one that had like 2 million views and it's just dogs and cats riding in Roombas. Right? It's ridiculous, right? So what iRobot could do is they could say, this is an improper use of our product. You know, the, the owner's manual says this is not right. So you must take this video down from YouTube right now. Uh, and a lot of companies might do that. You know, the lawyers would say, well, what happens if the cat's tail gets sucked into the Roomba and then we're going to get sued? Well, this is the fans 
sharing what they love about their 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 Roomba. Now, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but lawyers aren't marketing people either. So that's just that's but one perspective. And and I think building fans is such a powerful concept, and it can build an fabulous business. And it's it's just really important to be doing that. You you talk about uh, your your daughter and and you wrote the book with her. Yeah, you obviously represent in a few different ways different perspectives uh, that you you bring to the book. When you think about your 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 respective generations, are there generational differences today in how people of different ages interact or expect to interact with with brands? I think there are. Um, so yeah, so I'm I'm. Um, I hate saying I'm a baby boomer. I actually am, but like just by like a couple of years, yeah. but I am a baby boomer. My daughter's a millennial, obviously a woman, different gender. Um, she was born in Japan. My wife's Japanese, so she's mixed race. Uh, it's a very different person than I am. And, and she identifies as a woman of color. And so she says that her generation is way more inclusive than my generation. And her generation is way more tolerant of people who are different than other generations. And she, everywhere she turns, she sees tokenism. Uh, you know, the ways that brands communicate, you know, they'll have a picture of happy, smiling white people and then one token non-white person. And, you know, she's a, she almost never sees people like her, mixed race. You know, Barack Obama is a mixed race person, but no one ever says that. They always say he's black. And being conscious of LGBTQ plus rights and how people use products in different ways, her generation is very, very conscious of. Her generation is conscious of it in a way that they don't even think about it. It's just, it just is. It just is. Um, and so to build fans across all genders and all races and all of the different ways that people identify mean, means that you have to have people in your company representing those communities who, who can really represent it properly rather than a you know, someone like me, a, a baby boomer white guy saying, oh, well, let's figure out how we can make this inclusive. I can't do that effectively. Even though my wife is Japanese and my daughter is mixed race, I still don't feel like I can do that properly. I need to, I needed my daughter to write this book with me. Yeah. I couldn't have done it myself. Well, it was a, it was a great approach to take because it's, it's an incredibly valuable and, and, and readable book. The stories you tell throughout, I personally love the, the, the thread of live music throughout. Yeah, That's, yeah. I know that you've said that, that kind of fandom begins around, I think, 12 years old is, is when you kind of get introduced to that thing that can become a passion. Well, we, we asked thousands of people, at what age did you become immersed in your greatest passion today as an adult, and the average is age 12. And here's what we believe, this is our theory, and we've tested it, but we think it's true, is that the reason that you become passionate about something at age 12 that you then carry with you for the rest, rest of your life is that in our culture, uh, we no longer have coming of age rites, coming of age ceremonies. But throughout human history, there has been a coming of age ceremony for, for people as they reach puberty and enter into adulthood. Uh, we don't have that anymore. I mean, you know, there might be bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, and some other things out there, but for the most part, we don't have it. So young people, when they're approaching adulthood, create coming of age rights for themselves to break away from their parents. In my case, it was going to live music shows. I lived in the New York City area. I took the train with my friends an hour to Madison Square Garden. We went once a month to these shows. I was 15 years old. I was a kid. Yeah. And so when we ask people, 
um, the vast majority of people began the thing that they're a fan of when they were um, a young teenager. Yeah. I went, uh, it's fascinating. I went to see the British band Oasis oh, yeah. play their largest ever uh, show in, uh, I was 12 years old, it was 1996, and that kicked off. So you still, you're a live music fan still today? Love live music. Yeah, well, because that's how you, and were your parents with you? My dad took me Your and my brother and my cousin. Yeah. So and, it, and it built this bond that we still have today around it. We go so together to I shows still, even though I we live to, in different I've countries. gone to 100 shows with my daughter. Yeah. Yeah. I introduced her to live music. Her first show was the B-52s and the Go-Go. She was seven years old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And she loves it. Now she introduces me to music. We could do a whole yeah, other we could episode do it. I'll on come this. back and we'll talk about um, music. But I think I think we're about to get the get the cut. So, David, thank you very much. The book is, as I say, it's useful, it's readable, it's relatable because everyone is a is a, is a fan of something, yeah. um, and it speaks to that. So, thank you for coming to Lift Labs and being on Ideas Elevated. You got it. Thanks, Luke, for having me on. This has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast, NBC, Universal, Lift Labs. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. For more information and to find us on social, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes. Ideas Elevated is a Q9 production. This episode was hosted and produced by Kevin Schmidlin with associate production by Angela Gervasi, mixing and editing by Max Graham, and theme music by The Last Generation on Film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time.